Just a warning before we get started. This episode discusses suicide. If you need someone to talk to, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. There's some bad language in this episode too. The Murray-Darling Basin is vast. It fans out from the western foothills of the Great Dividing Range in Queensland and northern New South Wales and funnels heavy rains west. In the south, the Murray and the Murrumbidgee rivers are charged by melting snow and sustain some of the most productive agricultural land in the country. It drains water to the ocean from an area bigger than Western Europe. Almost every major river from Brisbane to Albury and across to Adelaide contributes to its flow. $24 billion in agriculture, 2.8 million people, more than 40 Aboriginal nations, 77,000 kilometres of mostly connected river in four states and the ACT, hundreds of species of fish, birds, plants and animals, some of which are found nowhere else in the world. Those numbers are difficult to imagine for most of us. Behind them are countless river stories, memories, pub yarns, anecdotes half-remembered, hopes and dreams. We aim to capture some of those stories, to introduce you to the people and places which make up the most neglected and forgotten part of the system, the Darling. I'm Tom Melville, and this is Forgotten River, a four-part Voice of Real Australia series on an outback tragedy. As much as I don't make the rules, we're going to be a generation that leaves the river in a worse state than what we found, and I don't think there's anyone that can be proud of that, is there? Whether you're directly involved or indirectly involved, we'll still be remembered as, as that generation, won't we? The Darling River, or the Barker, as the Barkindji people of far western New South Wales know it, wends through 1,500 kilometres of Australian outback. From beyond Burke in the north at the confluence of the Barwon and Colgoa rivers to Wentworth in the south where it meets the Murray. It's a ribbon of life in the desert and has sustained communities and cultures for thousands of years. But too often in recent years, the river has ceased to flow and there's an increasing concern for its health. Where there was water and life, the sounds of the outback, of the corellas and the bees, for nearly two years fell silent. I grew up fishing and swimming and camping along this river and for me not to be able to do that with my kids is like a passion that's gone away. The river seems to be dying, strangled by a patchwork of water policy and thirsty upstream mass agriculture. This isn't the result of drought or climate change, although those factors aren't helping. This is a man-made disaster. It's strictly a business for those guys. And if it, you know, it's either making money or it's not making money. You know, the CEO of, of that business, if it's not making money, he'll just cut it and go and do something else to make money for the shareholders. Scarsdale is over 60,000 acres of red dirt and saltbush scrub, right near the Menindee Lakes in outback New South Wales. He still gets his million bucks a year salary. At the end of the day, we can't just sort of switch and walk away from a farm uproot your family and shift everything to another job because this one's not paying for a couple of years because we know in a couple of years' time it will. Terry Smith is an outback archetype, plain-spoken, barrel-chested. His cheeks are weather-beaten, his akubra scarred. It's no wonder he featured on the front of an RM Williams catalogue. He's lived on Scarsdale Station for more than 20 years. Yeah, it's certainly a lifestyle. We are our own boss and the kids, I think the kids have sort of made it, they can go and do whatever they want. And the young fella's got two motorbikes and they've got a ute each. And For Terry and his family, this is home, the only place in the world he'd live. Over a cup of tea and orange cake, Terry tells us about the freedom of farm life. 
you know, the young fellas was driving the driving the grade the other day, and it's sixteen ton or something like most kids. Have, Got a sandpit with a with a toy tonker in it. <laughs> George's George's tenant driving it. <laughs> and someone's like, "Oh, you sure it'd be right to drive the graders? Well, he's probably safer driving that than anything. Like if he runs into a gate post in the grader, it's not going to hurt the grader. It's probably going to hurt the gate post. If he does it in a good Ute, well, I'm going to have a bent Ute. So, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, yeah, the freedom to sort of do what you want. And like you haven't got anyone looking over your fence to see what's what's going on. And, on top of running 3,000 breeding ewes, Terry is chair of the Menindee Lakes Stakeholder Advisory Group, which was set up by a group of locals to advise the government on the best ways to manage the Menindee Lakes. From the air, the lakes resemble a string of pearls draped across the landscape, the edge of a vast and treeless desert. Just to the east, the darling is scored into the parched earth. Flanked by centuries-old river redgums, it's easy to make out from above. It's the only strip of green for hundreds of kilometres. There are nine lakes, the biggest of which is called Lake Menindi. When I visited in 2020, Lake Menindi was empty, a huge treeless depression 15 k's wide. I walked out a short distance into the pan, but there was nothing there to see, save a few goats and an emu skeleton picked clean by scavenging animals. It was deadly silent. So I was excited to return to the lakes now there's water in the system. Writer John Hanscom, photographer Dion Georgopoulos and I drove up an incline and Lake Menindee revealed itself. An ocean in the desert, so long and so wide the edges fold into the horizon. It was no longer silent. A cool breeze whipped off the water and birds called to each other in nature's beautiful cacophony. It's difficult to reconcile the two images I have of the place with one another. The barren, featureless wasteland of 2020 and the choppy brown water bursting with life of 2021. But of course, this isn't nature anymore. This is the Murray-Darling Basin, and these lakes are highly regulated. Are they gonna let you keep the water? Probably not. They're making all the right noises about that, but for all intents and purposes, the rules that govern the basin haven't changed. The MDBA rules are still there. Like if the MDBA, now it's in MDBA control, and Victoria and South Australia call for irrigation water, and I guess it sort of falls back to New South Wales as to where that water's released from. I think they'll be a little bit more cautious about letting it all go as quickly as they have in the past, but I guess, as I said, the rules, the rules haven't changed drastically to alter the outcome, so if they require a lot of water for South Australia, then it's got to come from somewhere. That's the sound of water pouring over the Lake Menindee Dam wall. Millions of litres of the stuff. Since the start of 2021, enough water has worked its way through the northern basin that this lake is full to the brim for the first time since 2012. Until April this year, these lakes were bone dry. To the locals, this is the best sound in the world. As I was standing on the edge of the lake, a man approached me and we had a chat. He told me he was there in April along with a lot of his neighbours in Menindee, to watch as the water spilled over the main dam for the first time since 2016. He said that just 20 minutes after the water arrived, pelicans were seen floating on the surface. Water is here, which means life is here too, but everyone in town shares the same concern. How long will the water last? How you doing? Hang on, let me, I'll stamp out my boots, they're all muddy. 
is very essential to our lives. You know, the river is our lifeblood. You know, without that river, that water running, we need that fresh flow to keep the river running. And, and um, we've grown up on that river. That's where we um, get most of our food sources from too. You know, the fish, yabbies, and then you've got the emus and kangaroos and bush tucker stuff. That Without that water, you know... Cheryl Bloor is shy and soft-spoken. I wanted to meet her out on country, but the rain kept us inside. She coordinates the area's Barkindji rangers, who work with national parks to help manage the region's parks, the main one being Kinchiga, just a few k's outside of town. It's part of a former sheep station, one of the largest, oldest and most famous in the area. In the century, it existed as a pastoral lease. Around six million sheep were shorn here, the last one in 1967. Barker means river, and the Barkindji are the people of the river. They've lived here for tens of thousands of years, and Cheryl tells me what the river means to her people. And that's what we've got to keep fighting, the fight to keep that water. That's our life, you know. Without that water, you don't have anything, really. Does the health of your people suffer when the river suffers? Oh, yeah, definitely. Everybody. Everybody does, um, even like the elders that we've been losing the last few years. Mm-hmm. It's just um, one after another, you know. It used to be nearly two deaths mm-hmm. per week, one part of it, with um, our families in Broken Hill and Wilkenya, and also down Wentworth Way. And the suicide, you know, with our younger people, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And Drugs and alcohol. Yeah. They can't get out on country. Yeah. What are you going to do? The biggest thing is, you know, with... Um, they, they go out on the river, you know, and camp. And that's where a lot of their heroin is. They go out there and just relax and, you know, sit around and talk and um, do fishing and a bit of hunting and stuff. And that's what they're missing. Yeah, so that's our biggest seal and spot gone. Cheryl grew up along the river, learning her people's stories from her grandparents and relatives. That's been um, going on for years. That's how we learned by our parents and our aunties and uncles, you know, out on the river all the time. That's, that was our life too, you know. We were brought up on that river. That's where we learned to swim and fish. More safety. Yeah. Learning our stories, the story of the lunching that we had at the, the waterways, the underground waters, the, the rivers, the lakes. Mm-hmm. A lot of the cultural heritage. There's such a high volume of like food out on country that we've been learning about as well. So that's starting to come back, but we need that water. That's Barb Quayle, another Barkindji woman who's been fighting for the river her whole life. She's wearing a mask when we speak to her and keeps her distance. The Nachi she refers to is the rainbow serpent, which her people believe made the river channel. A big part of Barkindji storytelling relies on being able to live the story as it's being told. These are stories which are difficult to tell when the river is dry. I've got a seven and a five-year-old grandson and granddaughter and I haven't been able to take them out to the river to do that sort of stuff with them, to take them care them. To sit on the river bank and tell them a story about the way my name used to take us fishing, you know, in the times of sitting around as a family. You can't share those stories because you can't sit there and fish with them. We'd sit with Nan and... She'd catch a fish and tell us a story. 
and it, it will keep us yeah, engaged in what she was talking about, catching these fish. Cheryl explains what the water does and how it changes the country. With all that water, you know, bring them back, all the bird life. It's just unbelievable, all the different birds coming back to the black swans and the, um, even the white swans, and even the parrots and that, you know, the pretty coloured birds, you know, it's just beautiful to see them. You only got to walk outside and listen for a while and you can hear the birds singing. That's a freckled duck. They're, they're pretty well endangered, sort of. It's a grey teal. It's a hardhead. And that's a musk duck. The black cockies, well, the cockies used to come down here to breed down here. And then they'd go back up Wilcannia Way. But in 2006, the river dried. In 2002, to, to, when the millennium drought, the river was drained in 2002, and then we had the millennium drought in 2006. The river was dry. I don't think they could find their way back. So they started getting these cedar berries and cracking yeah. the kernels of them. So they live at date here. They never left. Wow. And they feed on the cedars every time, every year. Jeff That's Looney knows the lake's probably better than any white man alive today. He's showing John Hanscom and I photos he's taken of birds in the area. So I become a fishing guide, and got the boat and everything out in the water and that. Then, because people were saying, what bird was that? I didn't know. We become New South Wales bird atlases. That's recording our, our sightings of what we see. Then in 2006, the millennium drought, and already the lakes were drained in 2002 before this, I had nowhere to put a boat. So that would have meant a loss of livelihood for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was taking 400 people a year out or something like that. <laughs> Over the decades, he's counted more than 200 different species of bird in the area. It's more than kakadu. And he's seen good years and bad years. I was downriver before Minity Lake Field. I couldn't find a bird to photograph in two hours downriver. Couldn't find a bird. Minity Lake Field, within a week I was finding 10 and 12 species. But what's the difference? You know, it's just such a big lake, 14 kilometres by 17. That's such a draw card for these birds. And not just them, the migratory birds. Well, they, they never hardly arrived last year. We get birds from Siberia and Asia and, and top of USA and stuff like that. It'll be interesting to see what happens this, this spring when they arrive back from their migration. The lakes are ephemeral, meaning they aren't full all the time. The water in Lake Menindee now is from rains falling months ago and thousands of kilometres away in Queensland and northern New South Wales. But it's not a natural system anymore. Starting in the 40s, channels, locks, dams and weirs were built to help regulate flow and improve capacity for agriculture, mining and Broken Hills water. The minister, when she opened the lake, she came out to open them. She doesn't come to drain them. The minister, when she was here to open them, said that these lakes will evaporate. You know, it's standard procedure that they're not going to allow Menindee Lake to hold water. So you can safely say Corndilla and Menindee Lake will be drained because it's not in their plan. In that sense, this unique habitat has been treated more like a temporary storage dam. When the lakes are full, Water New South Wales or the Murray-Darling Basin Authority can drain them to fulfil water orders downstream as far as South Australia. In December 2016, the lakes reached almost 90% capacity. Lake Menindee was then fully drained again by September the following year. But Jeff says the lakes were rarely empty in the past. There's two things I, I hope I do well, and that's photography of birds and wildlife and fishing. And the birds can come back, most of them, the fish can't. I've been here since 75, and those lakes have never been empty. 
I seen an Indy lake which I thought was empty back in the 80s. But as soon as the water arrived, the fish were there. They still had survived. Barb Quayle says that despite the water coming back, and the birds and the swans, a key part of Barkindji life just hasn't returned. Uh, and the people in the community, the people are so happy that we've got water out here, but they're still solemn because they can't go out and catch a fish. There is no fish in this system, in the river. The fish kill was huge. And uh, we'd go fishing and camping with our parents, and, you know, if they caught a cod over that weekend, that was a celebratory feed, you know, to sit up and all the family sit up and a piece of, piece of cod. But there's these tiny cod that were caught by hand. It's almost like these cods were swimming into the arms of these yeah. people, like saving, saving. But yeah, so we can put fish back into the system, but we need the flows for those fish to move. There are no fish in the system because the fish all died. Ah, uh, the fish were dead all the way through here. Like thick, like, like covered covering the whole top of the water, you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I've got some photos. It's, it's hard to see in the photos. We didn't have drones and that then, but a drone would have shown up. But yeah, that was, I reckon there's 500,000 dead from, from here, about a K and a half through here of fish. And I remember going out that morning, we went up in the boat really early and it was hot. The pumps were pumping water back into, into the river. So people turned their pumps back around to try and aerate the water. It was really emotional, sad morning. I remember Peter Hannon, remember, you know Peter Hannon from the Sydney Morning Era? He rang me. I started talking, I just broke down in tears, I'd hang up on him, ring him back about an hour later, but yeah. Graham McCrabb is a large man who seems to fill up whatever space he's occupying. When we meet him at his grape farm on the banks of the Darling, right outside town, he's unshaven with a brown Akubra, parka, and, oddly enough, shorts. I don't really deal with that badly, to be honest. I'm feeling a little bit today, but... I have this theory that if you put pants and that on, you keep the cold in. You need to let the cold go out. His property backs onto the river, and he tells me how one morning he went down to check his pump and found hundreds of thousands of dead fish. You know, I remember we'd gone from sort of high 48s, 48, 49 degree days, and it went to about it was 31 or two the next day. So there was a cool change, if that's how you want to look at it. And I remember I was up early. I used to go every morning just to go and check, keep an eye on the river and feed a bit of data back to the fisheries. And um, oh, I had a cup of coffee, it's still dark, and I had a cup of coffee, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a shit day. So I just had another cup of coffee and went down, and now they were dying there, and it was just 30 k's of river with dead fish, and, and they were dying over two days. So you knew that the, um, it was worse on the first day of the third kill, and then the second day was just terrible. It was just dead fish for, for 30 k. So that, our weir pulls about, I don't know, about 45 k's long, and so for three quarters out of two thirds was just dead fish. It was terrible. Yeah, it was sad. In December 2018 and January 2019, three mass fish die-offs occurred, centred on the town of Menindi. Graham is talking about the third of them, the worst one, but he was there for them all. Watching the fish die, I still have some really vivid memories of fish struggling in the river, some of the efforts to save them. And uh, I remember one, I don't know why one fish, but there's one died down in front of Paul and I down the river there, and that was... Yeah, really upsetting that morning. We were down there to try and work out a plan to save a fish that was been on top of the water for about a week and a half. They were coming to the surface to try and get oxygen. The water was really hot. The birds had been attacking them in the heads because they were sitting right on the surface. And they were uh, really pale in colour. Uh, yeah, and that one just died that morning when we were trying to work out how to save this other big one beside it. And yeah, it was pretty, yeah, it's just a really sad time. It's difficult to know exactly how many fish died. The Australian Academy of Science says millions. 
golden perch, yellow belly, silver perch and Murray cod, some decades old, were turning white and floating to the surface, dead. The Murray cod got the focus through the fiscules, if you like, because they're big and they're iconic and all the rest of it. But if you look at uh, silver perch, an endangered species, threatened, endangered, protected, all the rest. We lost 100,000 silver perch in the fish kills here and no one talks about it. I don't talk about it enough either at times because it doesn't evoke any emotion with anyone. You need that emotional attachment, which the cod obviously gave us. But uh, the mussels, no one talks about the mussels. I, I did a survey with the mussel people. We, we walked uh, half a kilometre of riverbed and we counted 2,000 dead mussels there. What are we doing to our ecology? And no one could actually answer whether they died in the fish kills or the year after. Uh, turtles and all the other stuff that flows on from that. You know, what impact are we having long term when we start losing, not losing species, but certainly putting those species under threat? Graham was horrified at what he saw. You know, it's pretty embarrassing when you we've killed 30-year-old fish, thousands of mussels, and we've done it in 200 years. We haven't got much to be proud of as white Australians. Like, you know, I probably shouldn't be swearing, but, you know, we've made a fucking mess of it, haven't we? Genuine embarrassment. It's upsetting and embarrassing. The immediate cause of the fish kills was a lack of oxygen in the water. Extremely hot temperatures, some of the hottest on record, coupled with a stagnant river and little water to flush it out, encouraged blue-green algae to grow. The blooms began to die and sink, feeding microorganisms and using up all available oxygen. For this really sad bloody shot here, caused by the government... When the outside temperature dropped from nearly 50 degrees to down around 30, the layers of water began to mix and suddenly there wasn't enough oxygen at any level for the fish to survive. But the Australian Academy of Science report, commissioned by then-opposition leader Bill Shorten in the wake of the kills, says the long-term cause is that there is simply not enough water in the river to support ecosystems through dry times. The culprit, it says, is excess upstream irrigation. As much as I don't make the rules, we're going to be a generation that leaves the river in a worse state than what we found, and I don't think there's anyone that can be proud of that, is there? Whether you're directly involved or indirectly involved, we'll still be remembered as, as that generation, won't we? Sound emotional, it's smoking me eyes. <laughs> the sound Graham remembers most vividly was that of massive pumps, designed for irrigating crops, pumping water back into the river. His neighbours trying to oxygenate the water to get the fish going the only way they could. It was not effective. Oh, it's just people trying to do something for the fish, you know, seeing people that are super tight with money, just pumping water for the sake of pumping water, you know, trying to get some oxygen back into the water or try and move the water. Yeah, it's just sad, you know, it was a, a, a futile, like a bucket to a bushfire, you know, like you're actually going to do nothing but trying to do something, you know, that real uh, helplessness is just try, at least you try, but yeah, just the real helplessness of, of the situation. There was no water to flush down the river. There was nothing he could do. That was the only thing he could try and it certainly wasn't, certainly proven not to do any, make any difference, but yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know, just the futility of it all. It was arguably the fish kills that brought the plight of the Lower Darling to the nation. Pictures that Graham McCrabb took were beamed to newsrooms around the country and the world. This small, unassuming community on the banks of one of Australia's mightiest rivers was making headlines. I should have counted how many meteorites, but it just kept rolling from day to day. I think we had 18 politicians in those six weeks with the state election coming up. Yeah, and it was just full on. It was just an amazing amount of hours that went in by lots of people here to keep the story rolling, I suppose, making sure we accommodated politicians and media alike. And the third one 
sort of just rolled in with that and, and that almost called a circus, I suppose. It just continued on then for that third one. Everyone had a bit of a focus. And, After yeah. the kills, Cheryl Bloor was part of an effort to get fish back in the river. It was just, and seeing the cods, you know, um, 20 years old or more, you know, when they come come and collect them from Narandra with the fisheries, you know, we were down there that day and helped. We had um, community people there helping to the fishery mob to get them out of the water. It was very sad, emotional actually that day. Yeah, taking them away. The plan was to transport them from a different part of the basin, in this case Narandra in the Riverina, and introduce them to the Darling. It must feel strange importing fish when their you know, most perfect home is just down the road. It is, that's definitely, and that's a big um, push that we were trying to say. This, you know, that's our fish hatchery out there in the lakes. That's where they breed all the time, you know, with the lakes going dry and everything. They disappear. It's one of those strange and otherworldly situations you get in the Murray-Darling Basin. Imported fish to replace the hundreds of thousands which have been wiped out due to water mismanagement. Another head-scratcher for the locals is the Wentworth to Broken Hill pipeline. The Menindee Lakes were meant to provide water to Broken Hill. It's part of the reason for so much flow modification and earthworks in the 1950s and 60s. But as the lakes became less reliable, a pipeline was built in 2019 from the Murray River at Wentworth to Broken Hill. Without that demand from the town of 17,000, it means the lakes can be drained quicker and earlier than before. The pipeline is part of a New South Wales plan to shrink the lake system. A shrunken lake system means thousands of hectares less breeding ground for birds and fish and less reliable flows into the Lower Darling. Documents released a few years ago from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries show that the whole plan was devised to stop evaporation and save water to take the pressure off upstream irrigators. Independent MP Justin Fields, who secured the release of those documents against the wishes of the department, said, any way you cut this, the pipeline is a half a billion dollar gift to Northern Basin irrigators. It's such a relief in the communities to have water back there. It's just, it changes the whole, the whole outlook in the community and the whole sort of everyone's attitude to what's going on and puts a bit of hope back in the system that, you know, especially with you know, the guys in there with the, that are left with the horticulture, the few that are left, they've got some fresh water to put in their grapes and they'll probably get a good season next year. And they've got a bit of a chance to make some money, you know, which is what it's all about. Back at Terry Smith's property, Scarsdale, over my second piece of orange cake, he outlined his position. Yeah, you, you point out for all intents and purposes that, you know, one of our main goals is to have a, have a storage target in an India of 18 months water for the Lower Darling. Seems pretty simple. You know, if that target falls below 18 months, then some restrictions, not complete restrictions on irrigation, but, you know, as, as that time frame gets shorter, the restrictions get more severe in the northern basin to get water through the system. You know, that protects the Lower Darling water. It protects the environment and the lakes in Menindee and the fish haven. But also when the restrictions come in to bring water through the system, that brings fresh water right through the system from Queensland, Waterford, Burke, Chilper, Louth, Wilcannia, Menindee, Pernkerry. For us, it's a bit of a no-brainer, well, for all intents and purposes, but it just, it just seems impossible for people to grasp that. He's basically arguing for connectivity, to keep the river a river and the lakes lakes. From my perspective, it's just treated as a financial resource. 
basically an irrigation drain. It's about getting as, as much water out of it in Queensland or New South Wales or wherever as you can for your state to grow a crop with and then the, the state make revenue off the taxes. Yeah, if there's a reasonable level of security around their water for the environment, that underpins everything else. Like it underpins the community, you know, water for the communities, it underpins water for the irrigation sort of all up and down the system. If you've got if you've got those base flows that's that's secure for the river and you've got a healthy river, then everything else sort of thrives more so off that than just having all the water at one end of the river or the other end of the river and, and sort of nothing in the middle. I've heard that a lot along the Darling. People with a deep connection to the landscape slump their shoulders, dismayed at seeing their beloved river reduced to dollars on a spreadsheet. Probably a massive unseen cost, I think, financially, with supporting to the communities, the mental health toll on people who live along the river. You know, the, obviously the tourism suffers. There's all those sort of knock-on effects. For them, it's memories and stories and a whole life, a future. How can you put a dollar value on that? People in town watch the Menindee Lake locks with fear. They partly blame mismanagement of the lakes for the fish kills. At the time, there wasn't water in the lake to release into the river when the water quality plummeted. Fisherman, tour guide and birdwatcher Jeff Looney reckons the way the authorities have taken to rushing water out of the system is harming the environment. You get things like kingfishers will always migrate north and, and south. And if the river's in drought here, they just don't stay here. This year, the rainbow beaters, which are the kingfisher family, they come back. But a lot of birds of all different species haven't arrived, you know. Black-shouldered kites, which we used to see regularly here, I haven't seen them. Wedge-tailed eagles even are quite scarce around here at the moment, which is unusual because they're a dryland bird. Brown falcons, peregrine falcons, which breed here at times. And uh, how long it's going to take for them to come back, I don't know. It all depends how long these lakes are left with water. Until April this year, there'd only been water in Lake Menindee for a few months in almost a decade. Well, it's sort of got to go back a little bit because to see them fill in 2016 was great also, but they were emptied straight away. The water arrived in August of 2016. By January 2017, they were being drained again. Menindee Lake filled and drained in four months. And January, early January 2017, they said they were going to empty Menindee Lake because of evaporation, which in my opinion is a load of bull. The lakes are huge, but also pretty shallow, meaning evaporation is high, so authorities don't like keeping water there. They reckon it's a waste, a notion that is treated with a lot of scorn in this part of the world. Isn't evaporation a natural function of the environment? Where does rain come from if not evaporation? It drives Jeff mad. It's not an argument. We, you've only got to go to talk to a professor or something like that and he'll tell you straight that one lake doesn't evaporate more than another. You've got to have evaporation to get rain. It's just, just ridiculous. A bit of water was released just recently, putting locals on edge. Graham McCrabb is one of those locals, waiting anxiously to see when the lakes will be drained. But he tells me he's also conscious that Menindee only has as much right to that water as anywhere along the system. Everyone needs to be looked after. But he says that water releases in the past could have been managed better. I don't think it was managed as well as what it could have been. So certainly I supported the couple of the flows that came out of the lakes this time. Uh, as much as that caused some angst, but we had a, a wet forecast coming up, which has come to fruition now, you know, and, and still and more water coming now. So some of that water we let go last year that helped the cod breeding event, etc., which caused a bit of angst in the community. 
you have to try and use the water for good. You can't just sit here and keep it. And whereas back in 16, 17, even the lakes weren't full, there wasn't enough consideration given to the fact that we had a really dry outlook coming up. And, that, and I think that's the one that, for mine, I shake my head at that. We, we caused a lot of rain problems, probably not just here, but yeah, certainly could have been managed differently then. To say they were drained, I, you know. For grazier Terry Smith, the environment has come second too long. It shits me to tears. <laughs> the, the environment provides provides us with the water, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is the environmental water and this is the usable water. But everyone else with the usable water, everyone else gets gets a commission out of it, whether it's the government with their levies for pumping it or the irrigator selling his crop or... The environment doesn't get any levies out of its water. It's being given a little bit of water, sit in the corner and sort of be quiet. You know, it should be a... It should be a privilege, not a right, to use the water and make it a sustainable system. It's just to say that it's a that it's a loss is, yeah, it's a, it's a loss to the bean counters on their books, and they can't sell it or can't do something else with it. Jeff Looney loves living out here, and watching it managed in such a bizarre way enrages him. He can't see why it's not a national treasure. But this place could be a resort. What other place has got? a series of lakes in a chain joined together, which is, holds three, three times the size of Sydney Harbour and covers an area of seven times the size of Sydney Harbour. It's a resort area waiting to happen. And what else do people want? They don't want to go 100 k's to somewhere. They want to go 1,000 k's. It could be a resort town. Graham says people need to come visit while things are good and also when it's bad. If you, if you don't have a fire and sit in front of the... On the riverbank, maybe with a cheese plate and a cold drink in the afternoon on a, on a 40 degree day, then you haven't really actually visited Menindee or Louth or Tilpa or Pooncarry. Oh, well, can you? You know, that's a fantastic trip down there. It's just for anyone that enjoys a, a refreshment in the afternoon and, and can stop and see the birds and see the mobs of black cockatoos. You know, to tell someone that you've seen a mob of a thousand black cockatoos in the middle of the outback with the, the beautiful tails and the red in the sunlight. No words can describe that, and a photo doesn't do it justice either. The only way to really understand that, to see a, a mob come up like that, is to actually spend the time and, and go and see it. Barb Quayle and Cheryl Bloor are on the same page. A big part of Barb's job, she reckons, is communicating what a wonderful part of the world this place is. Being out on country as you're travelling, just sit, jump out and stop the car, walk in your own little space and just stop and listen. Just listen and breathe the fresh air. Feel that serenity of being on country. You know, imagine being stuck out there on your own and how the Aboriginal person had to survive walking across this country. So that bush could have been significant for their food. Or that tree, you know, could they have gotten water from that tree? Just drink in the environment. You know, feel the sense of the country, the beautiful country that we have here in Australia. You know, we've got to be one as people. Your culture's being forced on us, you know, so just listen to the Aboriginal people of the country. You know, like they're starting to listen with the fire stuff. They're trying to get the word out, to get people excited about the lakes and their country. And like everyone I've met, they're optimistic. I suppose you've got to be. How could you keep fighting if you weren't? We all want the same thing, so that we need them to join in and fight the same as what we're doing. Instead of... No, I bet not so. Yeah. <laughs>
gonna happen here, it's gonna happen elsewhere. So we all need to get on board and fight to keep water here in the country. Yeah. Across Australia. For the right thing. You know, not only it affects us, it affects the um, all of Australia, you know. Everyone. You know, not just us um, Aboriginal people. Like that's our culture and our heritage, that part. But um Everyone's got to have that water. We're not greedy people, you know, not like um, those politicians and um, the irrigators and all that upstream where they're keeping all that water in those big dams. The horror of the fish kills has faded from national consciousness and the town of Menindee has been left contemplating its place in the world. The damage has been done, millions of fish have died and the water policies which led to it are still in place. Graham sees bad times ahead for the system on the horizon. The Darling's been out of water for 20 years and it took a few million dead fish to get some media attention and we, we, we've changed a bit, changed the view of it, but we haven't actually really changed water policy. The day the Murray runs out of water is the day that the world or the country at least will sit up and say, where the fuck are we going with this? Because that until we reach rock bottom, I think it's a bit like an alcoholic, it can't recover until you reach rock bottom. We're not quite there yet, not from a visual point of view. I think from an ec- ecological point of view, we're close to rock bottom. But from a visual point of view, when someone looks over the bank in the Murray and they've got a lock that holds the water up, it, it looks fine. So, you know, that's that's the human nature, isn't it? As you said, with, when there's water, it's good. It's when they are struggling to supply water to Robin Vales and Mildura's and those sort of places like that, that's when you'll see some serious change. Well, it has to change then, doesn't it? On the next episode of Forgotten River... From here to Menindee, the 70 family farms. We're not a big on someone's electoral sheet. We go south, 120 kilometres to Pooncarry, the last in line for river flows. The former port town was once a key hub for paddle steamers taking wool to market. Now all that remains are some stubborn family farms. I reckon farmers aren't greenies, but I reckon we're the biggest greenies alive. Because it's... It's your living, it's your livelihood, you don't look after it, you've got nothing. We make sense of the politics and meet the station owners fighting for the health of the river and the future of their homes and businesses. That was episode one of Forgotten River, a Voice of Real Australia miniseries. To hear the rest of the series right now, search Forgotten River in your podcast app. Voice of Real Australia will be back next week. For more stories from the Darling, to see the gorgeous photos of the place or watch the videos, head to your local ACM news site such as the Canberra Times. This series was reported by me, your host, Tom Melville, and writer John Hanscom, with pictures by Dion Georgiopoulos. Production, mixing and sound design by Laura Corrigan. Our assistant producer is intern Ethan Hamilton. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. This podcast is recorded on Ngunnawal and Ngambri country in Canberra. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and James Joyce. This is an ACM podcast.